Okay, so there on the inside of your sheets, um, you'll see uh, the passage that we're looking at and a bit surrounding it. Um, and then you'll see there's uh, the series title and the sermon title. The series title is Facing Life and Death Trials Together. Um, James wants us to see that uh, our response to God's word is a life and death matter. And that we need to be there for each other, um, drawing each other back to the truth. Um, but not just in the emergency situations, just walking with each other. And, and this has really got us thinking about how can we be more proactive in setting up good structures of pastoral care? How can we be thinking about how we support each other through this? Maybe you've been thinking, oh, I need to make sure that there's someone I meet with regularly who I can open up to and who can be there for me, who I trust and who we can look at God's word together and so on. Uh, maybe you're thinking about how we can do things on a bigger picture. And um, although the um, church pastors are, are like the um, elders and pastors are described like fathers of a family, um, we're not the doers and we need the whole family to come with ideas about how can we put in place these good structures and so as we're working through these life and death trials together let's let's pray that there'll be big picture changes across the church of deep real life-changing life-giving structures of, of pastoral care based around the word of truth last week we looked at um, this big question of how do you see yourself and this week I've given the title, Seeing Who You Are Will Transform How You Treat Others. And so we're going to go back and look a little bit at last week's passage, not for long, and then we'll see how that flows into this week's. So let me pick up from verse 18 there at the top left of your sheets. He chose, the, the, the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change with shifting shadows, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So in the light of being born again, James says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. We saw that word righteousness is the same word as justice. When we um, are angry, it's often because our mini universe has had an injustice invaded. And so we get cross that someone has broken our code but actually human anger does not produce the justice that God desires. We're gonna think about, for the rest of this passage, we're gonna think about the justice God desires. But from ourselves, from our own universe, verse 21, therefore get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. We need to confess and recognize that is what we're like apart from Christ. And humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. That word save, same word as heal, the word that saves you, the gospel that saves you, is the gospel that heals you. Do not merely listen to the word, verse 22, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror. And after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets that his hair's in a mess and that there's muck on his face. Oh no, it doesn't say that, does it? It says he goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever in, looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. And we saw last week that we must see God's word as like a mirror. That's how James uses God's word. It's like a, like a mirror. Primarily, it doesn't tell you what to do. Primarily, God's word tells you who you are and who God is and what it means, what the purpose of his creation is. Primarily that the Bible is not a book of rules. 
Primarily, the Bible is a story of a God of love and grace who is generous and good and who created us for a perfect relationship with him. And yet we rebelled against him. Primarily, the word doesn't tell us what to do, but who we are. And so last week we looked at that theme of how do you see yourself? If you see yourself as the centre of your own little universe, then anger will come quickly because, as we've said already, anger is a justice issue and someone has offended you. But if you see yourself as a sinner, as someone who has turned away from God, who has put yourself in charge of your own mini-universe, whose primary concern is your own comfort and ease or, or, or justice and so on, you've turned away from God, you've put yourself as the, the lawmaker at the centre. And then you repent of that, you turn away from that, and you turn to the good news that Lord, the Lord Jesus has come to live the perfect life that you failed to live, and to die the death that you deserve to die, to bring you to, into a relationship with God as your Father. If you, if you turn away from what you were, apart from God, you turn to him, and you see that just in receiving his grace, you are born again. And you are a deeply loved child of your heavenly father. A father whose perfect law gives freedom. If you look in that mirror and see what God says about you in his word, then it will transform how you behave. Again, that's the title of this week. Seeing who you are will transform how you behave, yes, and then particularly how you treat others. So let's go to verse 26. Those who consider themselves religious, James says. Now, if you're anything like me um, and you grew up in a kind of formalised religion, um, I grew up in a sort of very cold, dead church um, with a few old people and a dog and it was very boring and it was all formalism and it was all you do this because you're told to do this you do this because you're English and upper class and this is the way you should do it then you might think well I'm I'm now I'm not religious actually this is freedom this is this is wonderful that's not religion but I think James means religion in a good sense those who consider themselves religious in a good sense in the sense of well we're religious now aren't we we're, we're gathering as church we're reading the bible we're praying we're singing to God Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worth, worthless. Hang on, James. You've just said that I'm born again by the word of truth, so how can my religion be worthless? Because James is saying that if you forget who you are, then you will live as who you are not. If you forget who you are, you will live as who you are not. And actually, all that singing and praying and meeting with God's people, which is a good thing to do, will become a mere formalism. Because you're, you're, going, you're coming to church each week, looking in the mirror, then immediately forgetting what you look like. And, and just the mess pours out of your mouth. No, I hold my tongue. I keep a tight rein, like, like riding a horse. You keep it tight. You know you've got to keep this tongue under control. I know that if I forget who I am, if I forget who God has saved me to be, then out of my mouth will come things that I regret and the people I love the most will be the people I hurt the most. Okay, so how should I live, James? What are the good things that God wants me to do? 
Yes, read the Bible. Yes, pray. Yes, come to church. But, verse 27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after, literally visit. So this is a practical thing near you, to look after or visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So there's two big things here that James is talking about. There's, there's justice to the poor and marginalised, and then there's purity from the sort of moral degradation of the world. And as I've been preparing this week, most commentators or preachers have said and pointed out that churches tend to be one or the other. And James isn't happy for us to be one or the other. So most conservative churches tend to, on the whole, if you caricature it, prioritise moral distinctiveness and be very clear on um, moral fabric and uh, family structures and what marriage is and the right way to be and to behave. And then more liberal or socialist churches tend to prioritise social action. The danger is that actually both are taking their lead from the world around them. The danger is if we're a conservative church, that we might be conservative because we are from a conservative section of society. It's, it's much more clearly polarised in the States. It's somehow easier to see it happening in the United States, if you know about the church scene there, than it is here. But we need to not just point the finger, but look at ourselves. But then the more liberal or, or socialist churches prioritising social action, often that is, is doing things that, that are popular and will look good. And it's wonderful that in our society, in a welfare state, which actually is built on Christian foundations, there's really good desire to, to help the poor. It is no longer, unlike often in Jesus' day, it's no longer socially acceptable to walk past um, uh, someone who's really suffering on the street. Um, we have to create excuses in our minds to do so, don't we? Um, it's, not, it's not socially acceptable to leave people without enough money to eat. And so we have a welfare state. And, and on the whole, there are very few people who are starving in this country unless there's loads of other sort of issues going on that mean they've somehow fallen through the cracks. Wonderfully, we are in a society that wants to, on the whole, care for the poor and the marginalised. And so... If we, if we sort of put ourselves in the conservative camp, then maybe we're, we've got people cheering in the wings for us to be more socially conservative. Or if we put ourselves more in the kind of um, uh, socialist camp, um, then we've got people cheering for us to be more caring for the poor. But actually, James says, no, the point is, it's about how you see yourself in Christ, that religion that God our Father accepts. We don't want to be thinking, what's the religion that the world around us accepts? What's the religion that our social grouping accepts? What's the religion that our, our camp, our denomination, our structure, our network will accept? Now the question is, what does God our Father accept? And he wants us both to not be polluted by the world, but also to care for the poor and the marginalised and those who are suffering and those who do fall through the cracks. So where should we take our lead? Next verse. Chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favouritism. 
My brothers and sisters, believers, those who trust in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Here it is again. Seeing who you are in Christ, in trusting Christ, will transform how you treat others, particularly in the area of favoritism. We're going to think about what that means. But you can only see who you are if you first see who he is. Do you see? My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. He is glorious. Literally, it's worded like this. Jesus Christ, who is the glory. Who is the glory. And, and that phrase, the glory, is James picking up on the great demonstrations, manifestations of God's glory in the Old Testament. So you know when Moses met the Lord on the mountain, saw him in a, a shining fire that didn't burn anything up. And then when God's people were led out of slavery in Egypt across the Red Sea, it was a great cloud shining with the Shekinah glory, it's called. The great glory cloud that then at night was like a pillar of fire. And James is saying, Jesus is the glory. He is, as the book of Hebrews says, he is the, the um, I've gone and forgotten, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. When we look at Jesus, we see in human form the glory come take humanity to himself. And of course that shows us that what did Jesus, what did the eternal son of God do with the glory that he had before the foundation of the world? What did he do with his glory? Well, I think one of the verses in scripture that expresses it most and it ties in with this passage is there in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, which talks about riches and poverty. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, there on the bottom left of your sheets. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, glorious, shining with all the glory of the universe, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, or believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, the glory, must not show favouritism, because... Because if you do, you've forgotten who he is and who you are in him. He is the one who gave up his glory to serve the poor. And that poor includes us. So if we show favouritism, we've forgotten who he is and who we are. Let's keep going. Verse 2. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring literally gold-fingered. He might have several rings on all his fingers. This guy is, is glitzy and impressive. A gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes comes in. Now, in James's day, there was much more wealth inequality, the kind of wealth inequality that you might see in developing countries today, where people were either very rich or the vast majority, very, very few were very rich, and then the vast majority were very poor. And this would be someone who, in our society, might not necessarily be glitzy and look rich, but they'd be useful to us. Let's keep going. 
Verse 3, if you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, sit on the floor by my feet. And that wasn't necessarily a bad thing to do in those days. You know, there would be, there would be seats for those and, and you know, a lot people who were generally poor would be used to sitting on the floor and they wouldn't want to mess things up. And so there would be special seats in, in a lot of buildings. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Wow. Something that would have been very normal in James' day. He's suddenly saying it's discrimination, it's favoritism. It's like, um, uh, it's the same word there, discriminated as, as earlier in James, the, the doubted double-mindedness. And what we see is that this is the right kind of person versus the wrong kind of person. Those we would consider useful who can offer us something as opposed to those we feel can't. It's very easy to get into that mindset as a church and, and people who come in, we think, oh, you know, they could be a great servant in the church. Let's get alongside them. Let's, let's, let's spend time with them. Let's train them up. Let's get them involved. Oh, it doesn't really matter if those other not particularly useful people don't really get stuck in. And it seems that in James's day, the the people who would, might be considered the most useless drain on church resources or resources of society in general would be widows and orphans. Um, those who couldn't really offer much uh, because they fell out of the normal societal structures. But if we do show favouritism towards the useful, then we contradict the very heart of God and the very people he prioritises. Have a look at verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? The whole point of the gospel message is that God reverses the world's ranking system and he prioritises the least useful. The gospel offers the poor so much and actually demands so much of the rich. Why? Why? Why is it that God prioritises the least useful? Well, it's because first and foremost that those who are poor know that they need God's mercy. And, and mercy doesn't just mean God's forgiveness, although it definitely includes that. But it means God pouring out his resources, his grace, onto those who have nothing, who come empty-handed. And you see, it's hard to accept the gospel if you are rich and comfortable. Humanly speaking, it is easier for those who are poor to understand the gospel message. In fact, Jesus says, you have to see that you are poor to accept the gospel, don't you? The first of those Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. To recognise that I come before God and actually you imagine someone in sort of the most poverty-stricken situation. They have nothing and they, they, all they can do is beg. And we're supposed to look on them and think, that's me. That's me before God. All I can offer to God is my poverty. Look at the poor and see yourself. Verse 5. 
Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. You see that laugh that James has for his readers? Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world, you and me, to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? Has not God chosen those who recognise that they have nothing as they hold out their hands to him? He fills them fuller than they could ever imagine for eternity. So if we see who we are, then we'll be able to accept the gospel ourselves. If we see that we are poverty-stricken before God, we will see that we can accept the gospel ourselves. And only then can we really offer the gospel to others. Seeing who you are will transform how you treat others. But James was worried that his readers had forgotten who they are and what God has done. Do you see verse 6? But you have dishonoured, literally insulted the poor. You, you can do that in two ways, can't you? You can do that by, by walking past them and thinking that they're irrelevant and nothing. You can also insult the poor by sort of being this great benefactor and saying, I will help you because I'm so much greater than you and I have so much and you have so little. What can I give you, poor person? Actually, if we recognise that we ourselves are poor before God, of course we wouldn't come with that insulting attitude. And actually, if we, we look at the world around us, James says, verse 6 continues, Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are not they the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to you belong? The simple point here is it, it's only the rich who have the money and time to turn the power of the state and the law courts against believers, which they were doing in those days. It was the rich and powerful who were oppressing the believers in James's day, who had the time and energy to bring injustice into the very fabric of society. James is saying favoritism contradicts the gospel of God's choice for the poor. And favoritism even contradicts God's law itself. Do you see verse 8 as it continues? If you keep the royal law, or what he's described as this perfect law that brings freedom. If you keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbour as yourself. You are doing right. But if you show favouritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as law breakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. And if you commit adultery but do commit murder, do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Now, now this section only really makes sense and, and many have pointed that the parallels here with the Sermon on the Mount are huge. So when Jesus was, was preaching the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6 and 7, he said, anger is murder and lust is adultery because because that I, verse 11 i don't know if you if it jarred with you as i read it for he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder you have become a lawbreaker i mean the idea that someone would would think that they committed adultery and then go uh, get committed murder and then go well i haven't committed adultery i mean even in their society murder was definitely considered worse than adultery but if Jesus is saying anger, it links back to what James was saying earlier. Even, even if you become angry. But actually James is saying something even more um, careful here. In, in helping us not to discriminate between the respectable sins and the unrespectable sins. 
So, so respectable people who are good at keeping the moral law of not committing adultery and not murdering and, and not stealing and so on might think that indifference to the poor is not nearly as bad as adultery. But James is saying you can't choose between these things. You can't say, yeah, I know I struggle to love my neighbour as myself. But it's okay, because I don't murder or commit adultery. You can't choose between these things. You need to recognise that actually if you fail to fulfil the perfect law of loving others as ourselves all the time, then you've broken the whole thing. And you can't sit easy unless you go back to the wonder of the gospel message that we are sinners who fail both wealthy people, we might keep certain moral aspects of society, but we fail to look after the poor. We fail to love our neighbours as ourselves. Or those who are very conscious that we've broken the very clear Ten Commandments and we've stolen and we've committed adultery and even some have murdered. Actually, we're in the same boat. We're both coming before the Lord empty-handed, saying, I'm poverty-stricken and I need your grace. And if you realise that you've been born again, not by, because of anything you've done, but because of his mercy and grace towards you, you know what happens to the commandments? They change completely in your mind, and they're not a list of things that make you acceptable or unacceptable. In fact, if you, if you know where the commandments came, they came in Exodus chapter 20, after God had saved the people from slavery, after he'd brought them through the wilderness up to Mount Sinai. Once he called them his treasured possession and said, you're mine and I've rescued you on eagle's wings and I've brought you to myself. And then he said, not you must. How do the commandments start? Not you must, but you shall. You see, if you really understand who you are in Christ, these are not commandments. These are promises. These aren't commandments, these are promises. If you know who you are, rescued, redeemed, child of God, with a father who loves to pour out good gifts on his children, who holds your hand, who delights in you, who hugs you to himself, who will always give you good things, who loves to answer your prayers, who is with you all the time, who sees you as precious, why would you want to rebel against him? You're not going to suddenly see a list of commands as, oh, I need to impress him just in case. You realise you're loved and precious and you see these commands as promises to step into. It's annoying in, our, in this translation, you get it in the more sort of word-for-word uh, -word translations. It's not love your neighbour as yourself. It's you shall love your neighbour as yourself. If you understand who you are and what God has done for you, if his grace is pouring into your life, then it can overflow to others. If you're a recipient of God's mercy, as someone who is poverty-stricken, then as you receive, you can give. And you can only give of what you have received. And if you don't pour out grace and mercy and love and resources that God has given you towards others, then you're back to that favouritism thing that actually invites God's judgement. Do you see verse 12 and 13? Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. 
Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James is talking about the big picture mercy, not just forgiveness, although it definitely includes that. But seeing those who are empty-handed and and offering them mercy and, and grace, not because you are above them and better than them, but because you have received. And just as you have received, you want to give. And Jesus picks up on this theme in, in, even in the Lord's Prayer, doesn't he? He says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. If you can't give mercy to others, especially the poor, it suggests you haven't received mercy. Or you've forgotten the mercy you've received. If you're holding a grudge, if you're angry with someone, if you're despising them, if you're finding them difficult, come back and see who you are. And see what God has given you. And the grace is poured out on you. And don't put it in a Tupperware and then take it to others. No, just let that grace pour out to others. Seeing who you are will transform how you treat others. And if you see who you are, you won't discriminate. It's a promise. You'll offer love and time. With, with the resources that God has given you. To those, even if you see them as not useful to you. You'll not judge, but you'll offer mercy, just as the Lord has been merciful to you. If you see who you are, you'll not ignore the poor, but you'll serve the poorest and the most marginalised in our society. First in the church family, first in those immediately around you who you can visit, and then beyond. Think about how God's grace that is pouring into your life can flow to others. As we close, I want us to think through what that might look like. Who specifically are the poor and the orphans and the widows that we might encounter? And how can we spur each other on, this is a together thing, to care for them? And if I had more time, I might give some more application, but I, I think in some ways, the best thing to do is to pause and think, maybe take a moment to write something down or make a note on your phone to follow up with this. How, how firstly, how do you see yourself? How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as a recipient of mercy and grace? And then how could that change how you treat others. Sometimes we want to get really practical quickly and we say, well, look at those homeless people that you pass on the street on the way back and do this, do that, do this, do that. Might include that. The Lord may be laying other things on your heart. Those of you who are on the church email list will know that I sent around an email this week to say that I was feeling a burden to share uh, a need to see that there are the orphans and widows, some of the orphans and widows today might be particularly the, the unwanted unborn. But if we're going to pour out grace to them, we need first to recognise who we are and that we are recipients of grace. And, and look at the women who are, who are struggling and who end up in that situation. That mercy and grace need to be poured out to them rather than just go out with the finger-wagging sort of judgment. We, 
We need to think about the poor and the marginalised beyond our borders, but maybe there are some in the church who are feeling poor and marginalised, and how can we reach out to them? Lots of things might be coming to mind. There is grace for every sin. And if you're, if you're coming here today and you're very conscious that you don't live up to God's perfect law and you don't live up to his standards and that you failed, if there's something that's convicted you in this passage about how you treat the poor and the marginalised or if you just, just know you're a, a lawbreaker in general, know that grace is, is offered to you and that we're a, a family not of sorted people, but of rescued people. And around you, you have brothers and sisters who want to share their lives with you and to point you again and again to the grace of the Lord Jesus. First, please, first, be a recipient of grace before you hear me saying that you need to do anything. But if you are a recipient of God's grace, if you feel you really are right now staring into the mirror of God's perfect law that gives freedom and seeing, staring back at you, a child of God. Someone who's loved, who's had all mercy poured out on them, all their sins washed clean, that the eternal Son of God has died for you, the glory of the Lord has come down into the form of Jesus Christ and he lived the life that you failed to live and died the death that you deserve to die so that his mercy and grace might pour out by his spirit into your life. If you see that in the mirror now, don't do nothing. Do something with that. But don't stop the flow of that grace as you walk out of here and think, oh, I need to remember what I need to do. No, just, as it were, stand under the waterfall. Again and again and again. Stand under the waterfall and say, Lord, I've got a little bowl here and it's a bit pathetic and I can only give so much. And I can only give of this if you just keep pouring that waterfall into it, it might overflow to others. And look with compassion and grace on those around you. Who's the Lord laying on your heart? Who does he want your bowl to overflow to? Today. Who are you holding a grudge against? Who do you need to say sorry to? Who do you need to pour out love and grace to? What could you do with the money that's pouring into your bank account every month? How could you give as your Heavenly Father has given to you? Let's pray. Father, thank you that even though we might deceive ourselves, that we're good or sorted, even though we might deceive ourselves, that uh, we somehow might be able to climb our way up towards your perfect standards. You look at us and you see us as we really are, destitute, broken, with nothing to offer you, utterly dependent on your grace, like a, like a newborn baby, helpless, full of life, full of potential, full of the wonder of, of living in this amazing world that you've created. 
and yet utterly dependent on you. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't deceive ourselves into thinking that somehow we have it in ourselves. And, and therefore would we not feel the need to defend ourselves or be defensive or to justify ourselves before one another. Pray that we'd be a, a church family that can be just incredibly open with each other about the struggles that we face. We'd be a church family that offers solace and grace that doesn't leave anyone feeling like they have to keep their mouths shut or maintain silence of, of an issue that is seen as taboo. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us to really think through how we can let your grace poured into our lives overflow to others. Give us wisdom, practical wisdom now, as we pray, Lord. That we wouldn't merely listen to the word, but do what it says. In Jesus' name. Amen.